two films, one theme. This is Words and Movies. Thank you once again, Alex, and welcome to the next episode of Words and Movies. I am your co-host, Claude Gall. And I'm your other co-host, Sean Gallagher. And today we're doing part two of our look at updated fairy tales. And the movies we're discussing are from the year 1993, The Bride with White Hair, directed and co-written by Ronnie Yu, and from the year 2011, Hannah, directed by Joe Wright. Now, the, in the previous episode, the movies that we discussed, which were Ball of Fire and Mona Lisa, both of those movies were updated versions of specific fairy tales. Uh, these two movies are not. However, they both have fairy tale elements in them, um, both of which should be obvious. And also, both movies are told in the style of a fairy tale, which is why I decided to include them here. And also, I'm pairing both of these together because both of these are action movies. Although, mm. as great as the action is, neither movie skips out on the more dramatic elements, which is part of what makes them both so great at least in my opinion, and we'll see what Claude thinks. But before we do that, here is the trivia question for this week. The two stars of The Bride with White Hair, uh, Bridget Lynn, and, who plays the title character, and Leslie Chung, have worked together in a couple of other movies, one of which it was directed by a director that we've talked about before on the show, and it is arguably his most divisive movie, so much so that he pulled the page out of Francis Ford Coppola's book and released a redux version of it about 10 years after the original version came out. Who was the director and what was the name of that movie? I'll have the answer for you at the end of this half of the, an of the episode. But right now, Claude's going to give us the plot description for The Bride with White Hair. Yeah, strap in. This one's a little bit on the long side. So... A narrative, a voice, explains that in the Shunqi years of the Qing dynasty, the emperor of China had fallen gravely ill. In pursuit of a legendary flower which blossoms once every 20 years and which supposedly has the power to restore life to the nearly dead, an envoy was sent to Mount Xinfeng, where the flower is to be found. This envoy and his three companions arrive at the mountain where a man can be found standing watch over a flower that is nearly blossoming in the snow. The envoy bows and addresses this man as Master Cho of Wu Tang, but he doesn't respond. They explain their mission, which prompts him to ask about the time. Well, what he means specifically, what year is it? The envoy answers it is the 10th year since the establishment of the Qing dynasty. Master Cho expresses surprise that it's truly been that long and just tells him, go away. The envoy tries again and again he's angrily turned away. His three companions arise and leap up to attack Master Cho, who jumps up himself and he easily cuts them up into a large number of very small pieces. The envoy himself attacks and lasts somewhat longer before he is knocked back. This wounded envoy asks who could be so important that Master Cho would save the flower for them instead of for the emperor, and then he begins bleeding out like a fountain and he falls to the ground. Master Cho resumes his vigil, and the narrative voice, which turns out to be his, explains that he is saving the flower for a woman for whom he has been waiting here for a decade. He wonders if she knows what he's doing, and we cut to the title card for the film. On the other side of the title, we find ourselves in a blacksmith's workshop. Master Cho, or... To use the name of his childhood, Cho Yi Hang explains that he was the student of Master Zhu Yang of Wu Tang, the joint chief of the eight big clans of China, which are the only ones whom the master considers to be worthy of the name. The master advises him to always remember that good and evil are like oil and water. This is a familiar lesson to Yi Hang, who's more interested in playing with a grasshopper that he's found. 
The master then asks whether Yi Hang has mastered the martial arts technique that he taught him, and Yi Hang claims to have perfected it. Master Zhu Yang turns to look at him, sees him playing with the grasshopper. Then he picks up a freshly forged sword and throws it at Yi Hang, who is startled enough to swallow the grasshopper, but he also manages to catch the sword. He begins to demonstrate the technique in question, which is so effective a defense that it can even deflect falling cherry petals from striking him. Master Zhu Yang flings a stick at him, and Yi Hang leaps up into the air and slices right down the middle of the stick. Yi Hang then asks for a few days off because he's doing so well. The master says, well, if you hope to become the joint chief someday, you must always practice. And in fact, Yi Hang doesn't really have any ambition of that sort, and he's content to do yeah, just a few good deeds now and then. But one such good deed gets him into a little bit of trouble. At night, carrying a lamb that he rescued from some bad men, he finds himself lost. The narrator explained that there were two things that scared Yi Hang, uh, thunderstorms and wolves, and he can hear the wolves howling not far away, and then he turns to see them. He sets the lamb down, telling it, I saved your life, and now it's time for you to save mine, and he runs off. But after he looks back, he decides he can't just leave the lamb to the slaughter, and he runs back to pick it up, then flees from the wolves. He calls out for help from anyone before he reaches a dead end. He cries out he doesn't want to die, and then hears a flute being played, and that causes the wolves to run away. Yi Hang looks up to see a girl standing on a hill nearby playing the flute and surrounded by the wolves who do not seem inclined to harm her. The narrator describes wanting to fly up to thank the girl and also to get a better look at her, but since he's very tired, he faints instead. A soldier on horseback finds him shortly after that, and they have a drink in his hut. The narrator says that this ordinary officer, uh, Wu Sun Kui, will one day become a famous general who changes the course of history. But for now, he tells Yi Hang that he was very lucky to have been rescued, and he should be more careful. And then he also shares this philosophy of life, that it is better to be at peace with yourself than to try and earn the approval of other people. Yi Hang is kind of astonished by the kind heart of this ferocious man, but he comes to suspect that San Kui is kind to him only because he's an orphan. In any event, Yi Hang is put on trial for his actions in rescuing the lamb, which is viewed as stealing it before it can be butchered, and then attacking the butchers. Master Zhu Yang is the judge, while the prosecutor is Yi Hang's uncle Pei Young, who views Yi Hang's acts as a disgrace to Wu Han. Yi Hang defends his actions as being based on chivalry and protecting the weak, and that the butchers were lucky that he didn't make them eat dog turds. This makes some of the onlookers giggle, including Pai Yun's daughter, Lu Hua. The narrator reflects that Pai Yun wasn't a bad man, he was just ambitious, and he wanted his daughter to become the successor to the title of Joint Chief, instead of the Joint Chief's favored successor, Yi Hang. Pai Yong was also the calligraphy instructor for the students, including Yi Hang, Lu Hua, and their fellow student, Lu Sen Chang. Uh, during one recalled lesson, Yi Hang is drawing a caricature of Pai Yong when Lu Hua comes in late. Yi Hang is given an arbitrary punishment, which he shrugs off, showing his caricature to Xian Chang. Lu Hua seems fond of Yi Hang and tries to slip him some food, but unfortunately she passes it down the line of students to him and everybody else takes a bite. And by the time it reaches him, well, Pai Young can detect the smell of the bun and he throws a brush at Yi Hang, getting ink on his face. He accuses Yi Hang of being lazy and foolish and says he should try to be more like Lu Hua, who naturally finds this very amusing. We jump back to the trial where Pai Young continues to criticize Yi Hang's behavior, but suddenly we realize there's been a time jump and Yi Hang is a young man now. Pai Young accuses him of leaving the monastery without permission and committing murder. Yi Hang says the man he killed was cruel to his own family, and they do in fact show up to defend him. Pai Young then accuses Yi Hang of being a bully to the other students, but they show up and they claim they were injured in other ways. Yi Hang turns around and admits he's responsible for the injuries, but he describes the reasons for doing so. Master Zhu Yang finally rules that Pai Young has to sit in meditation in front of the statue of Buddha for three days without food or water, considering his faults. Yi Hang does do so, but he also feels free to offer up his criticism of the Buddha. Lu Hua brings him in some food, and do, so does Xian, San, uh, Xian Chang, sorry, and then so do the other students. In fact, some of them admit they were forced to testify against him. Shortly thereafter, Lu Hua tells them all, get out of here or they're going to get him in trouble, and they all leave, but she stays behind. Lu Hua gives him a jade heirloom from her father, making him promise not to break it before she gives him a quick kiss on the cheek and she starts to leave, but he pulls her back and asks her to stay so that he can run out and use the bathroom without his absence being noticed. She's annoyed, but she does it. 
Elsewhere, a soldier orders his men to go out and kill some rascals. These rascals are stealing military food supplies to feed hungry peasants, among whom are a man and his pregnant wife. Soldiers ride up to their camp and begin attacking absolutely without mercy. The pregnant woman begins to give birth, and she and her husband stumble out of the tent and fake being dead until they can get away. The soldiers continue their rampage until they're attacked by a masked woman wielding a whip with such power as to be able to cut people to bits. A man sees her face and she blinds him. In the forest, Yi Hang is sleeping in front of a campfire and the pregnant woman and her husband turn up and beg for his assistance. However, Yi Hang has no idea what to do. Then the masked woman arrives and silently assists while Yi Hang stares at her. The pregnant woman dies in childbirth, but the child survives thanks to the masked woman. Feeling guilty, Yi Hang gives the jade heirloom that Lu Hua gave him to the man, hoping it'll be enough to help him start up a business. The masked woman departs and Yi Hang follows after her. In a pool in a ruined city, the wolf girl bathes while Yi Hang watches. Suddenly, she realizes his presence and leaps up to grab him and pull him into the water. When he surfaces, he spits water into her face. She swings her wet hair so that it slaps him hard and then grabs him by his own hair and as asks him, who are you and why are you following me? He points out, well, she's the one who brought them together and that kind of embarrasses her. So she lets go and leaps away and allows him to do the same. She says, any man who sees her face must be blinded. And Yi Hang notes, well, he's seen more than that. So he must be about to die. She grabs her whip and she tries to use it on him, but he dodges out of the way. She uses it again and she grabs what seems to be a note from someone telling her to come back to the palace. So she leaves, abandoning Yi Hang, who is only sorry that he didn't even get to introduce himself. At the palace, a gathering of the evil cult is taking place, with the wolf girl seated in the middle. Two little children bring her some tea before the cult's leader, Chi Wu Shang, uh, arrives to begin to address them. He describes recent actions undertaken by the cult's forces, denigrating the eight big clans. However, when one of the cultists interrupts his spiel with a persistent cough, he kills him with what I'm going to call a telekinetic pulse. Wu Shuang then uh, approaches the wolf girl and speaks to her, saying she'll lead the forces of the cult against the Orthodox clans. His sister then appears to her and describes how they've been suppressed for 20 years. The wolf girl sees an image of uh, Zhu Yang, but then she's startled when that image is replaced by Yi Hang. The leader notices that something's wrong, and he tries to seduce the wolf girl, but she just walks away. His sister laughs at him, mocking him for his obvious desire for the wolf girl, but he claims he's willing to wait for her to love him because coerced love is worthless. A soldier approaches Master Zhu Yang and, and describes the increase of the activities of the evil cult. Zhu Yang agrees this is a problem and suggests they should now work towards eliminating them altogether. However, most of the leaders of the eight big clans think it's easier said than done. Pei Young is of the opinion that it was a mistake to let Chi go three years earlier, but Zhu Yang wants to move past that. The problem now is who should lead the effort to deal with the problem today, and the obvious answer is the Wu-Tang Clan. Zhu Yang asks Xian Chang where Yi Hang is, and Xian Chang doesn't know. Outside, Lu Hua is waiting, and when Yi Hang arrives, uh, she first asks him where he's been, and then what did he do with the jade that she gave him? He doesn't want to answer, but when she produces it herself... He admits he gave it away because he thought the man needed it more than uh, Yi Hang did. Lu Wok tells him she killed the man and she'll be keeping the jade for herself now, and then she sends him into the palace to meet with Zhu Yang. After he apologizes for being late, the master tells him that the eight big clans are sending their forces to suppress the evil cult. Yi Hang says he doesn't think he's the right person to lead those forces. Pai Yong agrees and suggests his daughter, a suggestion that Yi Hang endorses, while at the same time criticizing Lu Hua for being violent. However, the clans think that giving command to a woman is contrary to tradition, and Zhu Yang gives Yi Hang a direct order to lead the army. In a more private meeting, Zhu, uh, Zhu Yang asks Li Hang why he tried to avoid the responsibility of leading the army, and Yi Hang says he knows that to be a leader means he will have to do some things that go against his principles. He wants to lead a moral life, but Zhu Yang points out that such morality aren't, only works when there aren't people out there who want to kill you. Yi Hang has no choice in the matter. It's kill or be killed. Yi Hang disagrees and says he does have a choice. You can quit and become a recluse if you want. Uh, in a later conversation at a fortress, San Kuei points out that the idea of Yi Hang quitting was kind of absurd because he has no other way of making a living than being a martial artist. On the other hand, he does have the opportunity to become joint chief of the eight big clans, and that's something that many other men would kill to have. 
He advises Yi Hang to develop some perspective. If he became the Joint Chief, he could be of real help to Song Kuei. Meanwhile, the soldiers have caught some infiltrators, and Song Kuei orders their execution when Yi Hang protests. He's told, look, it's better to wrongly kill the hundred men than to let one real infiltrator escape. And they were, after all, at war for their survival. At a meeting of the students, uh, one of them wonders why Yi Hang hasn't arrived yet. Lu Hua suggests that they not wait for him, and they start planning their strategy. While the forces against them are potent, she is certain that they can triumph. Suddenly, Yi Hang throws a sword into the middle of their circle, startling them. He appears to be drunk. He asks them why it's necessary to exterminate people who have done them no wrong. He asks Xian Sang whether he's heard uh, someone uh, die from violence. Lu Hua criticizes Yi Hang for ruining the morale of the meeting. He replies by noting her ambition and says she's much more suited to be the commander than he is. He throws her the emblem signifying command, and then he falls down unconscious. Meanwhile, the camp is being guarded by some rather reluctant sentinels, one of whom notes that there's something wrong in the forest, but his comrade thinks it's just his imagination. Unfortunately, he's wrong, and a couple of warriors appear out of nowhere to kill them both. Back in the camp, Sen Chang tries to wake up Yi Hang, then the attack begins, and there's no more time for any of this. The students engage in elaborate but not very effective battle formation, which dissolves into a general melee. It's like West Side Story with swords. Apparently, this all wakes up Yi Hang, who comes to Sen Chang's assistance when he's injured, actually just bruised. Yi Hang um, demonstrates great combat skill in the moments that follow before he or tries to order a stop to the fighting. And it's at that moment that the wolf girl arrives and apparently not recognizing him, attacks him. They take their fight to the branches of the trees and they arrive at a clearing. After a standoff, Yi Hang tries to remind her of their earlier meeting, only to be told that she has to kill him. He throws down his sword and tells her, do it! After a moment of confusion, she pulls back her whip, but then a dart from Lu Hua hits her. Yi Hang catches the wolf girl as she falls, picks up his sword, and he flees into the trees with her. He takes the wolf girl to the ruined city, and he begins treating her injuries by sucking the dart and its poison out of the wound with his mouth. Then they fall asleep together. Back at the castle, Zhu Yang speculates that the wolf girl is a witch who has cast a spell on Yi Hang. Lu Hua disagrees, pointing out that the wolf girl not only spared his life, but also left with him, which is a bit of an exaggeration. Sen Chang wonders if they're intimate before Zhu Yang says, shut up. Pei Yang claims that this is all just more proof that Yi Hang is not fit to be the next joint chief. Zhu Yang finally tells him just find him so that he can explain his actions to Zhu Yang. Back at the cult's castle, uh, Chi Wu Shang is in bed with his sister, and he's cutting himself, and it apparently causes her pain as well. She tells him she'll find him some other girl to replace the wolf girl, but he only wants her. He also wants the wolf girl to understand how much her desertion has hurt him, but his sister claims that it doesn't hurt any worse than when they were driven out of China by Zhu Yang 20 years earlier. His sister reminds him that they only took in the wolf girl to turn her into a killing machine, and she's the only one he can rely on. He says he doesn't want her around, but she tells him she doesn't have a, he doesn't have a choice, and now we get the reveal that they are conjoined twins connected at the back. In the ruined city, uh, Yi Hang uh, wakes up and finds himself alone. He gets up and finds the wolf girl playing the flute some distance away, and that's when he realizes this is the girl who saved him from the walls when he was a kid. They stare at each other across the distance for a moment, and the next thing you know, they are passionately kissing under the waterfall, as you do. Later, he notices a tattoo on her back, and it's the word Lien. She explains that the word is, as far as she knows, her surname. He offers to give her a first name and eventually comes up with Lien Ni Chang, which she likes. Then Yi Hang suggests that they just run away together. Ni Chang asks him if he really wants to walk away from Wu Tang like that, and he says he doesn't care about any of it. She then asks if he'll still feel this way when she's old and her hair has turned white, and he replies that there's this flower he turned about that blooms only every 20 years and will make someone immortal. Later still, she asks him to promise her that he will never distrust her. He goes one better, swearing an oath that if he ever lets her down, may he be struck by lightning. Later on, he wakes up and finds himself alone again with a message that tells him to wait for her. Ni Chang returns to the cult stronghold and speaks with Wu Shuang. She wants to leave the cult and is willing to take what, to do whatever it takes to do so. We get two scenes intercut with one another. Yi Hang is practicing his sword work in the Lost City. Ni Chang is undergoing a ceremonial wedding to Wu Shuang, who then tries to contemplate 
uh, consummate it rather, kissing her fully clothed body, and she's kind of disgusted by it. His sister, of course, feels his arousal, but she realizes somehow that Ni Chang is in love with someone else, and she's feeling nothing here. Around the same time, Yi Hang accidentally breaks his sword. Wu Shang's sister tells him what's up, and he literally throws Ni Chang out of bed. She tells him that she is now Lian Ni Chang, not the wolf girl. Angrily, Wu Chang uses his telekinesis to beat her, but decides to let her leave the cult. Meanwhile, San Kui has become the general he'd always wanted to be, but for the Manchurians, not the Chinese. Back at the cult stronghold, Ni Chang is torn out of her red wedding dress and left in a white dress as she walks a gauntlet barefoot over rocks to get out of the cult. At first, she's able to scare away those who would attack her with a mere look, but finally, she's attacked from behind and the cultists begin beating her fiercely. Wu Shuang warns her not to use any kung fu to get out of this situation. Rocks are thrown at her and she is knocked down twice before she finally gets out of the gauntlet, bloodied but unbroken to everyone's surprise. Two young cultists bring her the red wedding dress as she leaves. Meanwhile, Yi Hang has been found and told to come back to Wu Tang. He explains that he wants nothing to do with the situation. Pai Yong accuses him of betraying everyone close to him, while Lu Hua begs him to come back and at least explain his actions in person to Zhu Yang. He agrees to go, but when they get to the castle, they find it's been attacked, and Zhu Yang's head is found hanging from the ceiling. Li Yang cuts it down and tells the others to look for the body. It's found and reunited with the head. He hears Sen Chang's voice calling out and finds him mortally wounded elsewhere in the castle. Sen Chang tells him that the wolf girl and her men attacked while he was away. Li Yang can't believe it, even as Sen Chang dies in his arms. At the worst of all possible moments... Ni Chang arrives at the castle in the red wedding dress, and she is promptly attacked. She defends herself, but doesn't use lethal force. Yi Lang arrives and orders the fighting to stop. She asks him if they can leave, but he has a question to ask her, whether she is responsible for the attack on the castle. She says she doesn't care about it. All she wants to know if he's coming with her. Then he asks her why she did it. She gets angry and turns to leave, but he won't let her go without an explanation, and the Wu Tang won't let her go at all. Attacked again, she starts killing those who attacked her using her whip. She throws a spear that mortally wounds Pai Young. She wraps her whip around Li Hua's throat and then slams her into the wall. Uh, Yi Hang cuts the rope before she can decapitate Li Hua, and he slaps Li Chang hard just before Li Hua stabs her, although he tries to stop that as well. But his hands are on the sword, and in utter fury, she pulls it the rest of the way into her body before asking him just once, why he didn't believe her. She knocks him back several feet, and as he flashes back on all of the moments that they shared, her hair starts whipping around her, and it turns pure white. She is now the bride with the white hair. Employing telekinesis, she causes the sword in her own body to shoot out and impale Li Hua, killing her, and with a smile, the red dress explodes off of her, and she releases her hair to reach out and strangle the remaining defenders of Wu Tang. In a few moments, only Yi, Lang, Yi Hang remains alive, and she holds a sword to his throat. He calls her Ni Chang, and she tells him, that person is dead. She jumps up and away from him. A moment later, it appears that Zhu Yang has been resurrected, and he calls Yi Hang over to berate him before stabbing him with a sword. It's actually Wu Shuang in disguise, just as the wolf girl that uh, San Shang saw was the sister in disguise. She mocks Yi Hang before Wu Shuang uh, returns in his proper form to tell him, you're going to die a horrible death. Yi Hang pulls the sword out of his body to wield it as a weapon, challenging Wu Shuang to come out and fight. Wu Shuang uses telekinesis to send another blade through him, who then sees Li Hua's ghost appear before him and ask him why he did this. He lashes out by, at the ghost, and then he is pummeled by Wu Shuang's telekinesis, and he, drags, and he gets dragged toward a sword that is set up to cut him in two from the groin up. But the head of the Buddha statue gets dropped on Wu Shuang, distracting him before he can complete the attack. It's the bride with white hair who has knocked it loose. She looks down on Yi Hang, but the Buddha's head gets flung at her, knocking her away. Wu Shuang gets up and flings it at Yi Hang as well, but he's able to dodge and run Wu Shuang and his sister through with a sword, which does little more than annoy them, and so he knocks them around with telekinesis before going after the bride. She tries to fight him, but she's no match for his power. After incapacitating her, he goes after Yi Hang, depend demanding why 
to know why he tried to steal his woman. The bride tries to strangle Wu Shuang with her hair, but this doesn't work either, and everybody's bouncing around like pinballs for a few moments. The sister says, cut the bride's heart out, but he doesn't want to, and his hesitation proves fatal when Yi Hang employs the same sword stroke that split the wood earlier to split them in two, leaving them to bleed out. Yan calls out for Ni Chang and manages to stand up. He looks over the wrecked hallway and he sees her standing in the doorway, looking back at him with an unreadable expression before she walks away. And we're back in the present day. Yi Hang is still waiting for the flower to blossom. And we flash back on the events of the film under closing credits while the song Red Cheeks, White Hair, as performed by Leslie Chung, plays. Okay, so when we talked about Hong Kong movies in previous episodes, I mentioned that when they broke out in the 80s, it was mostly the action movies and the comedies that became, well, action comedies, I should say, that became popular, not just in Hong Kong, but outside. But as far as action movies go, that also included period movies and fantasy movies mixed with action, whether it was just straight action movies that took place in the past, you know, otherwise known as wuxia films, like, for example, the Jet Li movies, such as the Once Upon a Time in China series, the um, Fang Sayuk or the Legend movies, or uh, movies like uh, the one he did with Michelle Yeoh, Tai Chi Master, or ones with fantasy elements, such as the Chinese ghost, a Chinese ghost story and its sequels, or Peking Opera Blues, or movies like that. And of all those movies, for my money anyway, uh, Bride with White Hair is the best of them, because although it has dazzling action scenes packed into its 89-minute uh, runtime, it also has an emotionally compelling story and uh, good acting. And I'm going to get to all that in a moment. For, first, Claude, what did you think? Were you caught on it, in it too? Oh, uh, yeah, I absolutely was. You know, at first I was having a little bit of trouble following, but I fell into it pretty quickly. And yeah, it, it's, it's a compelling story. And I actually, what I, one of the things I liked was a description of it as basically a wuxia version of Romeo and Juliet. And I was like, that's kind of apt. I get that. You know, where you've got these, these yes. basically two people who fall for one another from opposing clans. I, yeah. That, that, that makes its own form of sense. Yes. It is based on a novel by the, by the name, by uh Yushen Liang, by the name of Bao Mao Nu, which translates uh, uh, something to the akin of uh, the white-haired girl or the white-haired witch. Um, and it was filmed a few times before this version, in 1951, 1972, and 1980. And they also made a movie uh, of it, or I guess a miniseries of it, in 2014 called The White-Haired Witch of Lunar Kingdom. None of, none of those versions I've seen. But when Ronnie Yu got a hold of the movie, he said that in the commentary on the DVD of it that I own, he said that he wanted to emphasize the Romeo and Juliet type story that was contained. I don't know how many of the other versions have that in the movie, but that's part of what made it compelling to me when I saw this initially, which I did not see it in theaters. I saw this on a VHS copy, I think, about 25 years ago or something like that. But um, yeah, that, that was something that greatly appealed to me. Now, of course, there are technical elements that help make this work as well. And that's a lot of that is due to 
two of the more well-known people who were working behind the scenes on this movie. Uh, the cinematographer of this movie was Peter Pow, whom we discussed when we talked about Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which he also shot. And while that movie had a lot more long takes than this one, you know, there's a lot of quick editing in this, and there's also slow motion that's used in this movie a lot, which was not used in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And by the way, David Wu was the editor on this movie, but it's still very striking. And you're always aware of what's going on as far as the fight scenes go. Nothing is nothing is incoherent while you're watching it. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. You've got a good handle on, on what's happening, even though, as you say, the editing is a little bit quicker. But that it kind of makes sense that you've got some similar DNA between this one and Crouching Tiger because you've got some similar actions going on, like the fights among the trees and, and so forth. So I was like, okay, that, that, that makes sense in its own way, too. Right. And the other somewhat well-known person behind the scenes, at least if you're familiar with Asian movies, is uh, Imi Wada who was the costume designer on this movie. And they were also the costume designer uh, and for Akira Kurosawa's movie, Ron, also won the Oscar for that movie. The costumes in this movie are not perhaps as striking as the ones that were in Ron, but they work just as effectively. And, of course, the most obvious case for that is the dresses that um, the bride wears throughout the movie, you know, symbolizing her emotional state throughout, you know, whether she's being fierce or vulnerable or when she's feeling betrayed near the end. You know, and that's a good visual element that plays throughout the movie. And then also the way that the costumes distinguish between the various clans portrayed in the movie. Because I have to admit, when I first saw the movie, I was a little lost as to who was fighting with who. And without those costumes, I might the distinction between those costumes, I might not have been able to figure that out. Sure. That makes sense. And, and, and to get back to the, to the bride's outfit and, and you, you've got, you know, a couple of times, especially with, with the red and the white, you know, uh, being very strong signifiers for this particular, uh, character, uh, you know, red for the wedding. Okay, fine. And then when she is forced to walk the gauntlet, she is still wearing the red dress. And then these two guys come up and they basically pull on the shoulders and the whole thing pulls apart into two pieces. Uh, and then the two cultists retrieve it and give it back to her. So that is not a big surprise when she shows up at the end of the film, again, wearing the red dress. And if people who were in the, the in the fortress at the time were kind of reading the cues, they would have said, why is she wearing a wedding dress? But instead it's like, oh, here's the woman who tore the place apart. And so they attack her immediately so that she goes back into the white outfit, which is, you know, basically it's, it's I, I'm pretty sure that's the color that the Chinese wear it for mourning. And so basically there's a death as she walks the gauntlet because she's wearing the white outfit and then she loses the red dress again in favor of a white outfit and hair to match uh at the end of the film because now that woman has died and replaced once again by the wolf girl right and that brings up one of the elements of the movie that i really liked which is um yes the evil cult is pretty bad <laughs> You know, unquestionably, the, they are, um, they do some really disturbing things here, but it's not like the clan that um, the Wu Tang clan is any better. You know, they're, I mean, they profess to be 
um, about being good, but they do some pretty, they, well, they do a couple not so great things either. You know, Lu Hua, she kills someone who, she kills the person whom the jade was given to. You know, that's not a really good thing to do. Right. We don't know why. Um, Maybe because just because he has it. Yeah. Whatever you think about that present that she gave being given away, you know, that's still not a good thing to do. And, you know, the Wu-Tang Clan, what they're talking about, you know, they're talking about how, you know, you can't show any weakness or be um, you know, be kind or compassionate to anyone, and you know that's not really that good a way to live either. So it's no it's no wonder that the star-crossed lovers who are at the center of this movie want to get away from that. But of course, unfortunately, it's not that easy. Yeah. I saw somewhere and it kind of occurred to me through partway through the film too, that, that there might be a little bit of extra subtext also with Lu Hua. Um, Cause we see her, like she passes him the bun and it gets him in trouble. She brings him the food when he's supposed to be, you know, fasting in the temple she gives him the jade, and and it's and while it's it's there there there's a an implied relationship. I mean, the uncle's not really an uncle, but that's the word they use. Well, she's you know, in love with Tom. Well, that's what I was getting at. It, it is you know, it, it's not necessarily explicitly spelled out, but she is in love with him. It appears, and some of her activity is basically out of jealousy. So you gave, he gave you that gift that I gave him. Well, you got to die now like that kind of, and, and betrayal as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, both he ends up without meaning to betraying both of the women in his life. So that's, uh, adds a subtext as well. Now, the part of this movie that might give pause to some of the folks is the conjoined twins. (laughs) And I have to admit that that also gave me pause the first time I saw this. But um, it has to be said that the actors who play the conjoined twins, who are Francis Ng, who also made a memorable played a memorable character in Infernal Affairs 2, which we mentioned um, when we talked about the first Infernal Affairs and The Departed, and which I have finally seen and can recommend. Oh, okay. And then also Elaine Louie. I'm trying to think if there's anything that she... Trying to see if there's anything that she's done that I have uh, seen. I know she was in one of the um, one of the Once Upon a Time in China movies, but oh, um, I think I saw a movie that she was in called Fighting Madam, which was another uh, action movie, although it's a lot grittier. Uh, she plays, again, a villain in that movie. And both actors, I think, are very good in uh, playing the conjoined twins. And somehow they make that crazy idea work. They do. And and what's what's kind of interesting is is uh, Elaine Louis is, is is she's she's kind of over the top, which is which actually kind works. of. Yeah. Um, yeah. She she okay she is she's over the top but 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 here's the thing it actually works because this is somebody who is literally on her brother's back like all the time she's a little bit crazy and you know see I'll, I'm I'm going to offer a little grace she's a little bit crazy here and so this is basically someone he's got to deal with twenty four seven and. And so she's like constantly with the laughing and the mocking him and and being a generally terrible person. And it's like, no wonder, you know, he wound up with being the leader of this weird cult. 
you know, because I, I think I might be driven to such a thing, too, if I had that sort of thing going on. And it was very cleverly presented up until the reveal. Yes. You know, where first yes. the first time you see the two of them uh, really in this in more or less the same frame. It, well, first is the dancing. OK, where the man turns mm-hmm. into the woman and you don't really know yes. what happened there. But then later on, when you get um, he's talking to the wolf girl and then he basically like slips out of frame and then she slips into frame and it was like wow that was quick how did that happen and you don't still right. don't know what's going on and it isn't until later on when you see the two of them in bed back to back and they're having this conversation and you're like what in the hell is going on between these two like is this what you know is, oh, it's one of these sort of family you know that kind of thing because neither of them have any clothes on other than the blanket over them and then finally the blanket falls away and you see, oh, here's what's going on. Very, very, very well done. I appreciate that right. a lot. And another reason why the perform- those um, performances work so well is they're part of the operatic tone mm-hmm. that you is going for in directing this movie. And, you know, he also did things like, um he shot this mostly at night and mm-hmm. indoors but he disguised it very well by using a lot of practical effects and the way that the hair turns white is a good example he says in the commentary that they tried very a lot of different ways to show Leon um go from black hair to white hair and in the end they had to settle for just using a wig <laughs> because they couldn't get anything else to work but it works very effectively here and of course another reason why the movie works so well are the two lead actors now um Bridget Lynn, this was one of the last movies that she did before she retired. Um, She was mostly known for appearing in wuxia movies like this, but interestingly enough, most of the movies that, most of the action movies that she did and um, not just period movies, not just wuxia movies, but also she was in, you know, Jack, um, the first police story movie with Jackie Chan. But most of the movies that she was known for, um, she played more androgynous looking characters in that. Um, her hair was usually short and she was often able to disguise herself as a man when it became necessary. And I'm thinking of the other movie of her, with her in it that I own, Peking Opera Blues, which was directed by Choi Hark, where she's playing a general's daughter who's secretly um, leading a revolution against him. And in that movie, again, she had short hair and would disguise herself as a man when it became necessary. Here, even though she can kick ass six ways to Sunday, you know, they do emphasize her feminine side here. And it's not just the way she looks with the long hair, but it's also the hidden feelings that are inside. Um, You know, at first we just think of her as this killing machine, but when she sees the pregnant woman And when she sees that um, Cho is stopping to help her, that moves her inside, which is why she decides to help the pregnant woman give birth. And the fact that her face is hidden for the most part and she only is able to communicate that with her eyes um, and yet she's still able to communicate that makes uh, Lynn's performance all the more effective there. Yeah, she's she's really good. And really, I mean, there, there are not a lot of female characters in this film, but they're all 
quite strong, really, in in one yes. way or another. You know, you've got no you've got no shrinking violets here. And but that that's interesting. What you what you mentioned about that other film is, is it it feels like this is like kind of a common theme among maybe a Chinese films in in general is that you know women are not supposed to be the leaders of the battle, but somehow they manage to get themselves in one way or another, whether it's by disguising themselves as men or just having to prove themselves one way or another. And, 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 you know, is, is that in fact the case that this is like a frequent, you know, storyline, even if it's not necessarily the a plot. I haven't seen enough movies to set uh, enough Hong Kong or Chinese action movies period or otherwise to say that for sure. Um, I do know there have been, as we discussed when we talked about So Close, um, quite a few of female-driven action movies in in, um, Asia, Hong Kong, Japan, and mainland China, but I don't know if they all follow that same Mulan-type plot. Yeah. (laughs) That, uh, you know, I can't say that for sure. Now, uh, as for Leslie Chung, this is a more um, subdued performance from him than I'm used to him giving. Um, I must confess when I'm talking, thinking about his more over-the-top performances, most of those have been in contemporary movies. Uh, movies like the first A Better Tomorrow movie, which he did with John Woo, and a couple movies he did with Wong Kar Wai, Days of Being Wild, and Happy Together. Um, but also in period movies like uh, arguably his most famous movie and performance, Farewell My Concubine, um, the movie that tied with the piano for winning the Palme d'Or in 1983, co-starring Gang Li, where he's playing a effeminate um, opera performer who is a male who always dresses up in drag. And, you know, most of those movies he goes, you know, he plays big. But here he's the one person who plays things on a more subtle letter, subtle level, excuse me, possibly to... Um, play up the fact that his character really isn't interested in doing the fighting as much as the other characters go. But he does very well in this movie too, and he and Lynn have great chemistry together, which if you're going to tell a Romeo and Juliet type story, you really need I'm finished with my thought. Did you want to add anything? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were going to finish that sentence. <laughs> just, no. Yeah, no. He he did a he did a very good job, and you could you could see there were times when you know he his his character is like just dealing with the tension of you know there is a a a an honor and a loyalty and a, um and, and an obligation that that he's supposed to be fulfilling, and at the same time he just he doesn't really want to do that. I mean, he says that. Even as a kid, he didn't really want to do it. And he's kind of like being pushed into this place that that uh, he doesn't really want to go. But he goes for the most part. And, and, you know, and even when he tries to leave, he gets pulled back in. And that's just, you know, the the way things are for him. And, and he kind of accepts it and kind of doesn't. He tries to find a way to, you know, accept it without 100% owning it and 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 that does that does all right and i did i should mention you know that i or rather i did mention during the credits it's his it's him singing the the song on the closing credits um and i i found this kind of interesting well he he was known he's also known as a popular singer at least was was at the time yeah was i'm sorry and um and and one of the things that they did was this was like a song that turned out to be something that a lot of people wanted. It was never released as a single. So if you wanted to hear the song, you had to see had the movie to or see the buy movie. a copy yes. of it. Yes. 
Yeah. Now, uh, yes, because unfortunately Chung passed away. Lin is still alive, although she retired um, nearly 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, now, a couple of pieces of trivia I want to mention here. Um, you hear the name Wu-Tang Clan in this movie, and you might think, oh, so that's where they got the name. But no, the hip-hop group actually got their name from an earlier uh, Wuxia movie that came out in 1983 called Shaolin and Wu-Tang hmm. uh, as Riza. Um, former member of the hip-hop group, uh, has long been a uh, martial arts movie enthusiast, particularly martial arts movies from Asia. So that's where he got the name of the movie. Uh, But one thing this movie can take credit for, for influencing, was the look... Um, the uh, style and the action prowess of Bridget Lynn's character were a major influence on the show Xena, the Warrior Princess. Hmm. So that's kind of that was kind of interesting to me. So, do you have anything else that you want to add before I answer the trivia question? No, I think I have said plenty for this segment. All right, so what other movie did Bridget Lin and Leslie Chung appear in that was directed by a director we've talked about before? And who is the director? Well, the director was one I just mentioned a few minutes ago, Wong Kar Wai, and the movie was Ashes of Time, another um Wuxia movie, and because this is a Wong Kar Wai movie as much as a Wuxia movie, uh, you'll meet about as many people who loathed it (laughs) as people who insist it's a masterpiece. And he was not uh, too happy with the version that was released around the same time that this movie came out. So he decided to um, recut it and re-release it about a decade later as Ashes of Time Redux. I have not seen either version. That's the only Wong Kar Wai movie I have not seen. So one of these days, hopefully I will catch up to it. But anyway, uh, stick around because coming up, we're going to be talking about Hannah. Yeah, that's immediately coming up in your podcast feed, so stick around. <laughs> 